welcome to The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, Angelo de Grazia of the Space Association of Australia is back. Yes, a sucker for punishment uh, to discuss the changes to the Artemis Humans to the Moon project. Last week's The Space Show, one of the issues we discussed was the delay in the launch of the Artemis II mission from late this year to late 2025. One of the reasons for this was a defect noticed in the heat shield of the Orion spacecraft after the Artemis I mission, which was flown in 2022. At a press conference held to discuss the delay of Artemis II, one reporter wanted to know when the heat shield lost char. Of course, the, the, other, the, other, the other new part about the way we did return on this vehicle was um, we did what we call a skip re-entry. And so the, the, uh, the majority of the liberation of the material, and when, and when I talk about it, it makes it sound like there's big chunks coming off the vehicle. That, that's not correct. It was some... Some liberation of char material that, you know, in general we were, you know, we were not expecting hardly any. We we did get some, and a, and a majority of that occurred after we pulled up from the first phase of that of that skip reentry. We're still piecing together that overall timeline. Of course, it's very tough um, based on the assets we had to identify each and every one. But we did we went frame by frame through every piece of video that we had from Orion and from our external assets to determine when the initiation of that our liberation began, and most of it was after we started uh, climbing out of that first, uh, the first dive into the skip. Another reporter wanted to know how much material was lost from Orion as it seared its way into the Earth's atmosphere at 40,000 kilometres per hour on its return from its voyage beyond the moon. We're going to move on to Irene Klotz from Aviation Week. Thanks very much. Irene Klotz with Aviation Week. Um, could you uh, provide some metric of how much char material was liberated, understanding that most of it occurred after that first pull-up, like what percentage came off versus what maybe you expected to see? It was across, it was across the geometry of the acreage of the heat shield. It was very small, localized areas. In fact, uh, interestingly, it would be much easier for us to analyze if we had large larger chunks of it and we and we was more kind of defined um, that's what makes it such an interesting uh, material and physics problem for us to reproduce but we do have uh, you know we have Lockheed Martin on the call so I'd like to see if Tanya Ladwig maybe has any anything she'd like to add I think the only thing I'd add Amit was um, you know we don't know like you said exactly the cause of liberation we're having a great results in the testing um, and that's why we're doing the extensive ground testing to analyze the data. But there was a healthy margin remaining of that virgin avcoat. So it wasn't like there were large, large chunks. There was, a, like I said, a healthy margin remaining of that virgin avcoat. And as you said earlier, the temperature data inside the cabin remained at the expected level. So if crew were on board, they wouldn't have been in danger. So um, hopefully that paints the picture of, of that it wasn't a very large amount at all. Yeah, I think, I think Tanya, the only thing I'd clarify is that, you know, the we, we did have margin in the material, but what, what we're really worried about and why we're spending so much time analyzing this is that, you know, as the geometry of that acreage changes, the flow around the spacecraft changes as well. So we really want to make sure that we understand for future missions under future conditions, you know, if that margin holds up. But, yeah, that, that's a Correct, yeah. Yep. Yeah, we just want to make sure that we understand why our modeling didn't predict it and so that we have accurate modeling for the missions going forward. Our guest... On last week's The Space Show was Angelo de Grazia of the Space Association of Australia. Well, since our chat last week, a subcommittee of the United States Congress held a hearing to quiz four witnesses about the delays to Artemis. One of the four was Michael Griffin, a former administrator of NASA. In my judgment, the Artemis program is excessively complex 
unrealistically priced, compromises crew safety, poses very high mission risk of completion, and is highly unlikely to be completed in a timely manner, even if successful. For the United States and its partners not to be on the moon when others are on the moon is unacceptable. We need a program that is consistent with that theme. Artemis is not that program. We need to restart it, not keep it on track, per the subject of this hearing. The Congress should provide specific direction to the executive branch to address this issue. Well, Angelo is back with us again this week to further discuss the Artemis moon landing missions and the precursor SpaceX missions that must be successful before humans can go to the moon. Welcome back to the Space Show, Angelo. Glad to be here, Andrew. And we were having a discussion last week, (laughs) and we got up to Artemis III. Yes. Just remind us again what Artemis 3 is. Well, Artemis 3 essentially is the uh, return to the moon of humans, basically. Um, there will be a crew of four uh, that will fly to the moon, and they will. Uh, two of the astronauts will go down and land on the moon with a SpaceX human landing system rocket. Now, we heard in a press conference that uh, there were some, or there are, some lessons and challenges. Let's hear that. So the new schedule for Artemis 3 aligns with the updated schedule for Artemis 2. It ensures that we can incorporate lessons learned from Artemis 2 into the next into that mission and also acknowledges the very real development challenges that have been experienced by our industry partners. As, as I mentioned at the beginning, we have an integrated flight test approach to this capability, so as we add each new mission increases complexity. We have to add tests for new systems, and, and this new schedule will give us the opportunity for our partners to, to have that additional time and make the refinements to make sure we're as successful as possible. Well, Angelo, what challenges do they face? The challenges, the first challenge is to uh, have some reliability of, this, of the Starship stack and system. That's going to require a number of launches uh, to get that um, experience and to prove reliability. Without reliability, you have no Artemis III. It's simple as that. That's the first challenge. The second challenge is to actually build the human landing system, to develop and build the human landing system man-rated such that it can uh, take people safely to the moon and back. Yeah, so, the human landing system is that thing that looks like a 1950s science fiction lander. To a degree, uh, it's, it looks like a bullet with some legs on the, on the bottom of it. Uh, it's a modified, it's a variant of the Starship itself, but has no um, aerodynamic components like the flaps at the front and fins at the bottom or, uh, at the bottom or a heat shield because it doesn't need it. But it does have solar panels on the outside. It has a uh, an elevator because you've got to get down, you know, 30 metres or whatever it is uh, from the top of the HLS, HLS system to the moon surface. Now, two weeks ago, the NASA people were acknowledging that the time frame for Artemis three, which, by the way, Angela, when is it now planned? Artemis three was supposed to be 25, late 25 next year, but NASA have pushed it forward to September, no earlier than September uh, 26. Okay. Well, they agree that to do that will be an aggressive time frame. Let's take a listen. See, see, the fall of 2026, that September 2026 time frame we, we, is still very aggressive, and we all, but we all need to pace our work uh, with the same degree of urgency, and I think it's very important that and our industry partners are 100% committed to this approach. In fact, not only are they committed, but they, it also is worth pointing out that some of the issues we found uh, with, Artemis, with the Artemis II components on the Orion would not have been found had we not pushed our partners to deliver uh, hardware for Artemis three and four as we proceeded towards flight, and so all of that production is is teaching us as we go. So, in, but for Artemis three, even though that fall of 2026 timeframe is is aggressive, 
We, our European partners are going to ship their service module in three months. We have the upper stage for the SLS already delivered. The, the, the uh, RS-25 segments, the RS-25 engines have already been delivered. We have the, the booster segments already ready to go. And so we have all of this work coming together in addition to the tremendous amount of tests that's going on at Boca Chica with SpaceX and, with, and here in Houston with Axiom. Uh, we need more time um, on the landing system de landing system development and on the on the suit development to do that. Um, you know they're they're making tremendous progress at Boca Chica with the with their test flights, but it's extremely challenging um, to some of the propellant transfer and other goals that they have in order to to make that Earth departure sequence work for us. So yeah, that, that I would say that even if we could fly Artemis two. On the time frame that we we um, we had planned originally, we would still need the extra time to fly Artemis three in September twenty six. Now, what do they have to do to develop this human landing system, Angela? Well, the human landing system. Uh, if you listen to reports, uh, and they're they're scarce and few and far between, but uh, NASA will tell you that. Uh, all the milestones are being achieved by SpaceX. So things like testing the elevator system uh, on, the, on the thing is going well. They've actually employed interior designers, believe it or not, to uh, produce the interior cockpit of uh, the human landing system. They've got to develop uh, engines, top-end top firing thrusters, uh, because they can't use the engines to land on the moon, otherwise they dig a crater. So they've got these engines at the top of the bullet, if you like, that fire just at the last uh, few seconds before they actually touch down on the moon's surface to do that. I haven't heard of any uh, comments about the development of those particular engines, whether they're souped-up Raptors or whatever. Uh, so there's there's a lot of work to do to prove you know, that they can build this thing. And the most important is to make sure that the Raptor 2s, that the, uh, and they'll probably be Raptor 3s that they'll be using, uh, the uh, uh, vacuum uh, Raptors um, are reliable. They need to be. They are on liquid methane and oxygen. They're a Methalox uh, firing engine. And they, it's not like the good old Apollo one where the two liquids mixed and they didn't need igniters because the liquid just, it's called hypergolics, they just fire. Uh, these require a spark to ignite them and uh, they need to be uh, reliable. They need to have redundancy. Uh, it's no mean feat to get that human landing system developed. And in my mind, I think that September 26 date may get pushed out. Just to be clear, a rocket engine that's designed to work on Earth, going up through the atmosphere, is different from one that's designed to work in space. Correct. Uh, you you lose efficient... If you use a rocket engine that, that is designed to work in the atmosphere, uh, where the atmosphere is actually pressing on the exhaust... Um, if you use that rocket engine in the vacuum of space, um, uh, because you don't have that atmosphere pushing on the on the exhaust, uh, it becomes very, very inefficient. So you create this, and you'll see them in orbital uh, rocket engines, you'll see these huge uh, bells that extend out from the engine, and that is essentially to contain the exhaust for optimal performance. They're going to have to do lots of tests of Starship. Do we know how many? Uh, no, we we don't. I, I haven't heard. I've heard all sorts of numbers, but uh, you know, if I was a betting man, I would say that they have to um, fly a minimum of four to five uh, reliably to get confidence that the thing will work. And then they've got to prove the in-orbit refueling, which is the reason why you want this thing to be reliable. Now, admittedly, you don't fly the Orion uh, capsule uh, into space with astronauts until you've got your tanker refueled, because you don't want to wait a year and a half uh, to refuel a tanker. So you've got to have reliability. You've got to have uh, increased infrastructure at SpaceX, um, Boca Chica uh, launch site to be able to launch these things rapidly. Um, they don't know how much liquid they can transfer. They don't know how many 
uh, rockets they're going to use, as we, we described earlier uh, last week. Uh, so uh, it's a guessing game. The boil-off in space is going to be uh, quite high because the truth is the tanker is not insulated. Mm. Not that I know of. Last week, Elon Musk was saying that the tanker could take up about 10 tonnes per trip. Does that sound realistic to you? No. The 10 tonnes is related to the test that they're about to do, I believe. They're going to transfer 10 tonnes from the header tank to the main tank in flight number three, IFT, uh, Integrated Flight Test number three, that comes up next month. Uh, They're going to have to transfer a heck of a lot more than 10 tonnes during a refueling exercise. So, um, and and the question is, if you can if you can imagine, they're going to fly the booster, then they're going to fly a refueling component of Starship. Um, it's going to use propellant, so whatever's left has to be transferred. Now, I don't I, look. It, it may be as little as ten tons, but I think it uh, it should be more than that. So, I'm not quite sure the actual numbers. In order to go and land on the moon, one of the technical challenges we have to solve is orbital refilling, where we dock, the starships dock on orbit and transfer propellant. Now, we've gotten very good at docking because we've, we dock with Dragon to the space station, which is actually more complicated than docking with our own spacecraft. So we have a lot of expertise in docking, so I'm confident we will solve this, and we just ideally want to solve it, hopefully by the end of this year, but certainly by, by next year. And that, that's a big deal. This is one of the fundamental technologies that's necessary to build a city on Mars and to have a, Mars, a moon base. And then, yeah, we'll also be launching some very big satellites, world's biggest Pez dispenser. And we do hope to do this by the end of this year. And then, yeah, more about the NASA human landing system. So, as I said, we're extremely grateful to NASA for entrusting us with a fundamental part of the Artemis program. We want to make sure we do a great job for NASA. And, and really, the, we, like, we are a very fundamental part of the, the Artemis program. So if we do not succeed, which we will, but we, in order for the Artemis program to succeed, we must succeed with, with Starship. And like I said, we actually want to far, ex- far exceed what NASA has asked us to do. So, so the, we, we want to go far beyond the NASA requirements and, and actually be able to put enough payload on the moon with enough frequency that you could actually have a permanently occupied moon base. That's the next really big threshold from Apollo, is have, a, have an actual moon base. That was the voice of Elon Musk. And our topic this evening on the Space Show is the problems they have with the Artemis missions to the moon. And we have more from Angelo in a few moments. You're listening to 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. We're with Angelo de Grazia from the Space Association of Australia discussing the Starship, which is planned to send humans to land on the moon. And as part of this, uh, this is a promise that was made several weeks ago. I'm going to move on to Kenneth Chang from the New York Times. Um, thanks. I guess as a follow-up to the SpaceX question, um, when would the crew test be now? Hi, yeah, we are targeting that in 2025. Again, we'll have flight tests leading up to that. We'll be working in close coordination with NASA, but we are targeting that mission in 2025. Under the first Artemis contract, um, they subsequently won another Artemis contract, in the first Artemis contract, which is Artemis three, they were required to do a uncrewed flight to the moon to demonstrate their ability. And if this timeline fits, that means that that unmanned or uncrewed flight should occur next year. Whether they can achieve that is anybody's guess. Of course, they've got to get one up first, don't they? <laughs> They've got to get one up, and Elon is quite confident that uh, IFT3, uh, Integrated Flight Test Number 3, next month might just do that because uh, they do plan to get it into orbit. Uh, that is now a change from the first two uh, test flights of Starship. Yes, the, the first two test flights were designed to go into space but into a suborbital 
trajectory, which went about two-thirds of the way around the world. Correct. On to Kristen Fisher from CNN. Hi, thanks for taking my question. This, this uh, question is also for uh, Jessica Jensen with SpaceX. Jessica, I'm just curious if you could give us an update on the timing for Starship's third test flight and if you can confirm if it would or would not include um, that uh, refueling demonstration on that next test flight. Thank you. Hi. So, yeah, we are working towards um, Starship flight test number three right now. We have static fired the booster already. We have static fired the ship. Um, this will not be the mission that does the on-orbit ship-to-ship propellant transfer. So, this is just the next series and our iterations of um, increasing performance and getting to orbit. But there will be, we are working towards a tipping point demonstration, so that might be what you're talking about, where um, the goal is to transfer um, propellant from the header tank into the main tank. So it's sort of a smaller subset of learning about cryogenic propellant transfer in orbit. Um, from a hardware readiness perspective, we are um, targeting to be ready in January. And then from an FAA licensing perspective, we're getting a license for Flight 3. Part of that is closing out the corrective actions from Flight 2. Um, we're on track for that. We're working closely, so we're expecting that license to come in February. So it is looking like Flight 3 will occur in February of this year. This time they're going to fly into orbit, and they're going to do a couple of crucial tests. One is the in-flight transfer of 10 tonnes of fuel from the header tank to the main tank. And the other important thing is they're going to fire their uh, Starship, and this is the orbital component of the of the stack, they're going to fire their engines to uh, re-enter, and then they're going to test their heat shield. And I must tell you that that's one of the systems I don't have a lot of confidence with. If you noticed uh, the IFT-2 mission in November last year, uh, during flight, a number of those tiles popped off. Now, admittedly, in fairness to SpaceX, they hadn't tested all those tiles uh, by the pull test, right? You get grab each tile and you, you pull on it, like they did on the space shuttles, essentially. Um, they, on the subsequent orbiter that they're using now, they have done these tests, so they are more confident. But to me, it looks like a fragile system. And if it's one that relies on reusability, uh, quick reusability where you can't reinspect the whole heat shield, uh, fragility is not something you want. What's the Starship frame made of? Stainless steel, basically. It is a stainless steel structure, which is more forgiving in terms of thermal loads. It can take a lot more thermal loads. Um, the The actual heat shield is tiles covered with a with a blanket underneath straight onto the uh, the stainless steel. Now, on re-entry, you can't just use stainless steel. It'll melt. Uh, re-entry uh, temperatures are, are quite significant, so you need a heat shield. Uh, but if you lose a tile or two, uh, I don't know what the tolerance is. I have not read any reports about it, uh, what the tolerance is to how many tiles you can lose and still recover the, uh, uh, the, the, um, the orbiter component, mm. the Starship. Uh, two weeks ago... NASA officials were asked about their confidence in this new date set for Artemis 3. Let's take a listen. Uh, now we'll take a question from Eric Berger from Ars Technica. So I get, this is probably a question for Jim, but maybe also the senator. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit about the confidence that we should have in a 2026 launch date for Artemis 3? You know, this date has moved from 2028 to 2024 to 2025, not to 2026. And you know, it just it. You talk to people in the industry, and they they don't feel like that's really realistic, given all of the work that that Amit described and that you described, Jim. That we've got a, you know, we've got ahead of us. And so, is this really an aspirational date, um, like where there's a low chance, or like do you think there's a fifty percent chance of us hitting this date? It just just kind of walk me through your confidence in that date because it does not seem to be consistent with what I'm hearing in industry. Yeah, thanks, Eric. Uh, thanks for making the time to be on this. Uh, it's interesting because we have 11 people in industry on here that have signed contracts uh, to meet those dates. Uh, so, so from my perspective, the people in industry are here today saying we support it. Um, we've signed contracts to those dates on the government side based on the technical details that they've given us that our technical teams have come forward with. It is, of course, not without risk. 
I mean, uh, we're, we're, we're moving two for crew safety. Um, we're setting a date for three that we have set with our contractors based on the technical plans that they've laid out. Um, all of those technical plans have risks to them. They have risk, uh, risk mitigation associated with them. Um, Off-ramping points based on what we learn as we're going through some of those tests. You heard uh, Jessica's great description of, of what their plans are to get through things to support three. Um, we also have the spacesuit development that we're, we're on the, the back end of the preliminary design review for Artemis three. So the, what we found out in, uh, in that review process and their supply chain setup is some of what has also influenced the date. Um, so from a what do we have for uh, confidence? Um, I, I don't think I can I can put a number on it. What I can tell you is we put margin in there to uh, account for some of the risks that we plan to uh, we anticipate seeing. Um, we've tried to address the, the unknown unknowns um, and set a realistic plan uh, in place. You know, one of the discussions with the crew is they want to see a real realistic plan because they feel like that gives them the best path to people working to a realistic schedule, and, uh, and that's what we try to put in place. So confidence-wise, I can tell you we've looked at all the steps, what it takes to get there to September of 26, what it takes to get there from launching in September of 25 to launching again in September of 26. Uh, an example being what happened to the, the uh, mobile launcher. We understand that better. Uh, after one, we've made engineering changes for it to uh, withstand the launch more, so we anticipate driving down some of that. So I, I think what I, I want you to walk away with is the confidence is we understand the vehicle better, we understand how it comes together better, and then we've, we have the industry people uh, on the phone to say that's what they've signed up to contractually, and that's what we're going to hold them accountable to. Well, Angelo, we've already touched on this, but do you share that confidence? No, I don't. I I think the technical challenges that they've um, embarked on are, are significant. Now, look, if anyone can do it, don't get me wrong, SpaceX are the ones to do it. You know, if, if we were talking Boeing, I'd say, no way, Jose, but we're talking SpaceX. And they're very adaptive and they're very agile and they react very quick. But these challenges are significant. Uh, look, as when SpaceX got awarded these contracts, uh, as Bill Nelson said, you know, high re risk, high reward, and uh, we're in that regime right now. But the but we're at the pointy end now. Uh, if they can't get some of these technical issues resolved, uh, even as simple as the heat shields and you know the reliability of engines, Artemis fails. Simple as that. Or, at the very best, got to wait till 2029 when the Blue Origin Blue Moon lander gets developed. Last week, Elon Musk claimed that Starship 2, the uh, integrated flight test number 2, made last year, nearly made it into orbit. Nearly did. Let's take a listen. So, in fact, ironically, if, if it had, had a payload, it would have made it to orbit. Because the reason that it actually didn't quite make it to orbit was we vented the liquid oxygen, and the liquid oxygen ultimately led to fire and an, ex and an explosion. We wanted to vent the liquid oxygen because we normally wouldn't have that liquid oxygen if we had a payload. So, ironically, if it had, had a payload, it would have reached orbit. And so I think we've got a really good shot of reaching orbit with Flight 3 and then a rapid cadence to achieve full and rapid reusability. Flight 3, we've got, well, we want to get to orbit and we want to do an in-space engine burn from the header tank and prove the that we can reliably deorbit. We want to do a tipping point a header domain propellant transfer. This is important for the NASA Artemis program. And we want to also demonstrate the payload door for the sort of PES dispenser for delivering the Starlink the V2 non-mini, actually probably V, I guess V3 technically, but really the really giant satellites to orbit. Yeah. So we will go with Isam Ahmed from ASP. Uh, yes, thank you for uh, taking my question. Um, I, I guess one of them is for Jessica. How many um, uh, total orbital tests 
do you think Starship needs to do um, before, prior to the uh, lunar uh, uncrewed landing uh, for you to be comfortable to, to move to the lunar um, test? So, yeah, for leading up to the uncrewed mission, the main thing we really need is the prop transfer capability, and there's no, you know, minimum number of flight tests. We're going to execute as many as possible. It just helps us iterate along the way. The prop transfer flight is really the main one because really what's been happening over the past few years is we've been building the machine to build the machine. So we've basically been building all of the infrastructure and factories to ensure that Starship sort of right out of the gate has a high production rate, is capable of reuse, and has a lot, you know, and has a high launch rate. And basically all of that is going to help us in the prop transfer flights, the uncrewed demo, and then finally the crewed landing. So it's just really taken us a long time from sort of we'll call it like an infrastructure getting set up perspective to get to these first flight tests. Now that we're in flight test mode, there's no bare minimum of flights. It's just as many as we can get to help us iterate a little bit faster, but really it's prop transfer capability than the uncrewed mission. Musk there, Elon Musk, saying that uh, the aim of Starship 3 do you think that's achievable? Um, look, Star, Starship 2, as he rightly said, nearly did make it into orbit. And and I thought that, uh, you know, this hot staging, which was a new new thing, uh, actually caused the destruction of the Starship uh, during that flight. Well, that wasn't the case. In fact, they um, vented the oxygen and that just caught fire and it blew the thing up and then the uh, termination system took over from there and just ignited. But I think that they've got a really... They almost did make it into orbit. If they didn't vent that oxygen and they had a payload, they would have got into orbit. So I'm pretty confident that they can get into orbit. Uh, Whether they can recover the booster is another question. Uh, The verdict is still out as what caused it to explode because the termination system actually exploded that rocket after it tried to do its re-entry burn so but but i think that they will get into orbit uh, the next time confident in last week's briefing elon musk admitted that refueling is an essential step to artemis 3 we discussed that last week and also moving on to moon bases let's take a listen the Starship is more than twice the thrust of a Saturn V. It is by far the biggest flying object ever made. And for, you know, with, with some upgrades down the road, it'll, it'll actually be, I think, probably over 20 million pounds of thrust. And Saturn V is seven and a half. So it'll, it'll end up being three times the thrust of Saturn V. And it's going to fly a lot. It has to fly a lot. So it's going to end up flying several times a day from many different locations in the world. And I think there's a pretty good chance that it does Earth-to-Earth transport as well. Because the fastest way to get from one place to another on Earth is, you know, to get from here to the other side of Earth is an intercontinental ballistic missile. But just make sure you delete the nuke and add the landing part, basically. I'm going to move on to Joey Roulette from Reuters for our next question. Hey, thanks. Uh, what would it take for NASA to decide to move that first moon landing mission off of Artemis 3 and onto Artemis 4? Um, and just for Jessica, what is Starship's current milestone schedule, you know, including the propellant transfer test, the landings, uh, before it makes that moon landing? Thanks. Got it. Yes. So we are tracking for propellant transfer capability, again, these initial flight tests uh, in 2024, and then continue the learnings into 2025. Um, one of the other missions we have leading up to Artemis 3 that we believe is super important, again, another flight test, is an uncrewed landing to the moon. So again, using Starship to do an uncrewed landing on the moon and then ascending off the surface. Super important to, again, test that before we put people on board since, yes, as everyone said, you know, crew safety is paramount. So we want to ensure we do as many flight tests as we possibly can just on the Starship vehicle in general, but also do the uncrewed landing to the moon with Starship before Artemis 3. And to your uh, first question, Joey, I I think it's what I tried to say earlier. What are we going to learn on two that might make us change three? What are we going to do from a hardware availability? If the hardware is not going to be there in a a reasonable time, then maybe we need to make a change. And and then, you know, what else could possibly be out there? Some of the issues that Ahmed put out there, like the circuit issues, we, we didn't anticipate. Um, so we'll learn from the production of other vehicles as well. 
Uh, you know, 2024 is a whole bunch of development for us. Some of the, the uh, spacesuit development that uh, we have to go through, the uh, SpaceX flights for the human lander that we have to go through, the continued build of the two vehicles. So we're kind of constantly looking at what is going to be um, what is going to be there and uh, what's going to be ready and what do we need to do to make sure that ultimately we minimize the risk. There's always going to be risk. It's flight test. It's landing on the surface of the moon, but what do we do to minimize that from hardware availability, hardware understanding, and hardware readiness? Well, do you agree with Elon there? Uh, absolutely, because uh, Elon got the first award awarded contract by NASA for Artemis Three, provide a lunar lander just to land on the moon. Then they got the second award uh, without competing, in fact, because it was part of the first award uh, allowables, if you like. or um, And so he got that. So Artemis IV is also a SpaceX human landing systems. Uh, now, they're going to need that refueling without a shadow of a doubt to get to the moon. And they have to use many refueling flights to be able to service a um, a moon base, essentially. But interestingly enough, having said that, uh, SpaceX are using methane liquid oxygen. Now, interestingly enough, uh, Blue Origin, Blue Moon, uses liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen. And guess what? They rely on refueling as well. So uh, there's going to be a real challenge for 2029 when Blue Origin step to the plate and uh, land on the moon. So, so how is Blue Origin going to do this refueling? Do we uh, know? There, is, there will be refueling ca capacity. One is there will be refueling capacity through the Spirit module that is an ESA module that uh, will attach to the gateway, Lunar Gateway. Um, uh, but there also, uh, I believe there is a tug involved uh, with their Lunar Lander. And that may also provide fueling. So it's going to be an issue for them. But they're dealing with real cryogenic fuels. They're, they're talking liquid hydrogen. And, uh, you know, I'm more doubtful to that combination of fuels than the Methlocks. So that blue lander is going to be part of the Artemis Four mission, isn't it? Artemis Five. Ah, oh, five. Okay, let, let's discuss Artemis Four. And its connection to what's called the Gateway. What is the Gateway, Angela? Okay, the Lunar Gateway is essentially a, a little space station that is orbiting at near rectilinear halo, halo orbit. Um, now, the halo orbit is there for a number of reasons, uh, but I will, I will describe them because it's important people understand why we've got a rectilinear halo orbit. Uh, because it gives you constant communications to the Earth, uh, it's always visible to the Earth when you're in that particular orbit. So you don't go behind the moon. You never go behind the moon. It, it, you go beyond the moon, but not behind it. Correct. And you've got a um, uh, an apogee of about 70,000, I think it's miles, but it could be kilometers, I'm not quite sure, to 10,000. So it's a one to seven ratio of apogee to perigee. Um so that's the first reason. It allows uh, rockets that go there and then come to the moon to basically land anywhere on the lunar surface, which is terrific. If you remember the old Apollo, it uh, was pretty well constrained to the equatorial uh, regions of the moon. Uh, of course, the, uh, the South Pole is uh, so very important now because of water that uh, they want to be able to access that area of the moon. Um, it also maximises fuel efficiency, but this comes to the the elephant in the room as to why they've really got this near rectilinear halo orbit. And the reason is that the uh, Orion capsule and service module does not have the power to get itself into lunar orbit. That's the truth of it. And uh, that was a historical thing that came about from the Constellation program uh, when the Constellation program was cancelled. The only thing that continued was the Orion program. But by that stage, all the designs had been 
established and set up. NASA was going to develop a bigger service module, but uh, because of funding, that didn't happen. So they're stuck with what they've got now. And the only way they get to the moon is to go into a near um, uh, rectilinear halo orbit. So that's the history of it. You're listening to The Space Show on Southern FM and uh, we're going to continue our conversation about the Artemis 4 mission in a few moments. 88.3 Southern FM. Our topic on this evening's The Space Show are the Artemis missions to the moon and uh, let's hear a little bit more about Artemis 4 and the Gateway. So I'll move on quickly to talk about uh, Artemis 4 and 5. For 4, we have several new developments as Jim mentioned, it will be our first new mission to Gateway. We know we have to launch the integrated power and propulsion element and the HALO. Uh, this is the core of Gateway. It will take uh, about 12 months for that for that PPE HALO stack to to on a long spiral trajectory head out to the to the NRHO orbit where we will meet him with a crewed flight as planned in September of 2028. We 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 had previously planned to launch the PPE and HALO in October of 2025. We're now working with our industry partners at Maxar and Northrop Grumman to review the schedule for when it makes sense to launch that before Artemis 4. We believe they have a great path to get us there to support that mission, but we are we will be updating that schedule uh, here as well. So we again we, we're doing what we can to make sure our partners have the time to do the development correctly and safely. Jim also mentioned that Artemis 4 will incorporate the configuration of the Block 1B on the SLS with the with the exploration upper stage carrying the first gateway module as a co-manifested payload, the incredible I have from, from ESA. And Artemis 4 will also be the first mission to host uh, logistics delivery. Uh, we, we have given authority to proceed for, from, our, from our partners at SpaceX to develop a logistics capability to deliver cargo to the Gateway Space Station, and that, that started at the end of last year. Our special guest this evening on The Space Show is Angelo de Grazia from the Space Association of Australia. Okay, the gateway. The gateway will be launched to coincide with Artemis 4. The first components of the gateway will be launched to coincide with Artemis 4. Artemis 4 is not until uh, September 28. Uh, so you will find that probably in 26, the first components of the gateway will be launched by a Falcon Heavy. And the reason it'll be launched probably a year in advance or a year more in advance is because it's going to take a year for uh, once you get that uh, gateway into orbit to actually elevate itself to the moon using ion thrusters and solar solar power, essentially. So we're going to get uh, the uh, HALO, the Habitation Logistics Outpost, launched with the power and propulsion module. That'll go up on a, a Falcon Heavy probably in 26. That'll be waiting for Artemis 4. Artemis 4 is the first one to use what's called the Exploration Upper Stage. It is a much more reliable um, uh, second stage than the interim cryogenic uh, propulsion stage that we're using now. And that'll uh, raise the tonnage from 27 to 42 tonnes into lunar orbit, which means that all Artemis projects thereon have payload capacity, and the payload capacity will be used to extend the gateway. In other words, bring up extra pieces to the gateway. Artemis 4 will be the first of those will bring up the ESA's International Habitation Module to the gateway. Artemis 5 will bring in another ESA module mm -hmm. uh, that will be... Um, basically a, re a refueling and comms module, and Artemis 6 will finish the uh, creation of the the gateway. Well, Angelo, let's take a quick listen to the plan for Artemis 5. I'll, I'll finally wrap up with Artemis 5, which to me is the end of our, at least what I consider our responsibility as a, as a test program. Uh, we, are, we are bringing on a, a brand new landing system provider, Blue Origin has been a tremendous early partner with us. Uh, we intend to announce um, a provider for lunar terrain vehicle services in the coming months. We'll have new gateway components and a, and a logistics delivery. The administrator pointed out the exciting news of having that of our new partners in the United Arab Emirates that are going to provide an airlock for the core components of Gateway, which after that Artemis 5 and 6 time frame will complete the core of the Gateway space station. 
And also, finally, in the last few months, we've been asked, we've asked both of our human landing system providers, SpaceX and Blue Origin, to begin applying the work they're doing on the human-rated versions of, of, the, of the landing vehicles to develop a cargo variant that can land large cargo on the surface, which is a tremendous change in, from the way we've, we've done uh, lunar exploration in the past. Well, does that sound like a good plan to you? Well, yes. I like the fact that there are two lunar landers. Artemis V will have the Blue Moon lander. It was a contract that was awarded last year for, or was it the year before, for $3.4 billion. Um, it's a much more capable lander. The only issue for me is the hydrogen liquid oxygen mix. But to have two, two landers gives you a little bit of redundancy there. So I think that's a good thing, and they will deliver more components of the of the gateway. Uh, the only thing I've got a, you know, an issue with is that it won't be till twenty twenty nine, which will probably get pushed out to twenty thirty. Mm-hmm. One of the surprises at the press conference, surprise to me, uh, two weeks ago, was that the United Arab Emirates is going to provide a airlock to the Gateway Space Station. Delivery. The administrator pointed out the exciting news of having that of our new partners in the United Arab Emirates that are going to provide an airlock for the core components of Gateway, which after that Artemis 5 and 6 time frame will complete the core of the Gateway Space Station. Yeah, I, look, it's great. And I mean, it's all part of the Artemis Accord, of which Australia is part of that, by the way, because we're we're flying our, what's it called, Andrew? The uh, Ruver. Ruver. <laughs> R-O-O hyphen V-E-R. <laughs> you know. Kangaroo Rover. Incredible name. But, but it uh, won't hop. It, it won't hop. <laughs> It'll roll along. Uh, so, you know, it's all part of the Artemis Accord and everyone's con- contributing all sorts of components. And UAE are one of them. And uh, they had uh, their agreement uh ratified um, recently, a few weeks back. And, uh, yeah, they will be flying on one of the Artemis missions. It could be, you know, Artemis 5. It could be Artemis 6, depending on the uh, the weight and the volume that uh, capacity that they have f- from the mission. But because they're using the uh, exploration upper stage, they've got a lot of capacity there. To do things more than what they did in Apollo, they're going to have to land a fair amount of cargo on the moon. Here's a little clip about the cargo lander variants that are going to be developed. And also, finally, in the last few months, we've been asked, we've asked both of our human landing system providers, SpaceX and Blue Origin, to begin applying the work they're doing on the human-rated versions of, of of the landing vehicles to develop a cargo variant that can land large cargo on the surface, which is a tremendous change in, from the way we've, we've done uh, lunar exploration in the past. HLS has already got cargo carrying capacity. However, Blue Moon, they've got one that, I forgot what they call it, uh, Pathfinder. Uh, that will launch probably, my guess is 27, and that will carry three tonnes of cargo to the lunar surface. Uh, now, that's the Mark I version of Blue Moon. Uh, I'm not sure of where the Mark II, because Mark II is the human-rated version, whether they can uh, adapt that, because it may have a bit more capacity to carry a bit more. Um, so mm. I'm not quite sure, Andrew, where... Well, if you go back to Antarctic exploration, just going down there and just using... Shanks's pony you know, on foot, you're not going to get very far. So you need a big ship that's going to carry your tr- coiler tractors and uh, all the infrastructure that you need to support a base there. So if you're going to eventually start building a permanent settlement on the moon, you're going to need a fair amount of cargo there, aren't you? Okay, the HLS system is already uh, built in with huge cargo capacity. You know, we're talking 100 tonnes onto the lunar surface, which is just mind-boggling. The numbers, you know, don't hit you uh, immediately. But that is a huge volume, uh, a huge capacity, and that's already built in. 
Blue Moon, the first version, which will be Mark 1, um, will be uncrewed and it will be the cargo variant and it will take three tonnes to the lunar surface. That's the first version of it. The second version is the crewed version and I'm sure there'll be other versions of uh, uh, cargo-carrying spacecraft. But they're not the only ones. You've also got, as part of the CLIPS program, a number of, you know, astrobotics eventually, uh, you know, intuitive machines. All these people are going to build uh, cargo variants to carry instruments to the lunar surface. But the big one is going to be the HLS. If they can get that working, again, quoting Bill Nelson, high risk, high reward. And just, I know we're talking about the moon, but just to add one little component, if HLS works and Starship works and they've put all their money on it, NASA have just bought themselves Mars. That's the issue. And that's what Nelson was talking about when he said high risk, high reward. If you can get uh, Starship flying reliably, once you get out of Earth orbit, uh, the solar system is your oyster. And uh, Mars becomes within reach, and it could become within reach in the early 30s with Starship. Anything else we need to raise before we sign off, Angelo? No, uh, I think, like I said last week, I think we're in for a great year of, um, of space. It's probably the golden age of space, believe it or not, um, where commercial space has really changed the dynamics of it. Uh, SpaceX are going to uh, move in leaps and bounds. They launched 96 rockets last year, two of which were Starships. Uh, this year, they're going to try to launch over 144 missions, which is just incredible because China last year only launched about 67 rockets. So SpaceX is right out there making it happen. And mm. there's a whole bunch of other commercial companies including in china in china yes that are that are coming up with the goods uh, europe has got is full of them uh we've even got our own we've got gilmore space coming this year um you know first uh sovereign launched rocket from from australia which would be fantastic but there's a whole bunch of these right around the world that are coming into play what survives and what disappears is going to be the big question mark and 2024 will be the, the defining year for a lot of these projects. Angelo, from the Space Association of Australia, Angelo de Grazio, thank you for coming on The Space Show. Thank you, Andrew. It's been great. I'm Andrew Rennie for the Space Association of Australia.